Well, good morning and welcome again to Faith Church. My name is Pat. I'm one of the pastors and here. Our, our lesson this morning is entitled, Healthy Community is Worth Protecting, Defying Evil. Defying Evil. But before we jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to do a little follow-up. And uh, I have really enjoyed some of the feedback that I've gotten from last week's challenge. So how many of you remember last week's challenge? I didn't say how many of you did it. I asked how many remember last week's challenge. We have one slide that may jog your memory, and that's only, of course, for those who were here or listened to it online. So 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, that was our encouragement to try to remember that verse and put that in places where we could remember it. Now, if you memorize this verse, or verses rather, congratulations, well done, good job. If you didn't, it's not too late. Uh, though today was the pop quiz that I told you about last week, um, you will have an opportunity to continue to memorize this verse each and every time you want to invest in growing your ability to create healthy community here at Faith Church. So my encouragement is that this verse, these verses rather find their way into some visible place uh, in your home. And let's read them together. I think we've got a slide that has them on there. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Love never fails. Very good. So, that's 1 Corinthians 13. Congratulations to those of you who memorized it. Now, I was praying for you, and if you remember the challenge from last week about memorization, you probably also remember my prayer request for you. And someone encouraged me moments before I stepped into the sanctuary here this morning and said, Pastor Pat, I memorized 1 Corinthians 13, just like you asked us to. And I said, yay. And then this person said, and the Lord brought those verses to mind when I was making my list of the people who I was angry at. And the Lord used those verses to help confront me about my list making. And I thought, yay, praise the Lord, that's great. My prayer, if you weren't here last week for all of you, is that you would experience a meltdown. And my prayer was that you would experience that meltdown before the day was out. That was last Sunday. And I suggested that if you escaped 24 hours of not having a meltdown, that is a display of something that you'd rather not have displayed, then just wait, because there are seven days between then and now, and chances are you're going to have a meltdown sooner rather than later. And so I hope that my prayer for you was answered, and that you saw what was on the inside that came out under duress, under an unfortunate experience, or under something as simple as waiting in a drive through line when it was taking too long, right? So um, how many of you are courageous enough to say that God answered prayer in your life this week? Praise the Lord. Look at that. Woohoo! Yes! Yay! That is called spiritual growth. Why is it called spiritual growth to have a meltdown? 
um, because you saw it. <laughs> and that's different from meltdowns that you don't see. And we're going to talk about that today. That is, that we can behave in ways that seem to us to be completely appropriate, and yet they create all kinds of problems for the people around us. And the only way that that starts to stop is when you become horrified by what you see coming out of you. Not so much other people. It's easier to be horrified by what we see come out of other people. No, no, spiritual growth happens when you begin to become horrified by what comes out of you. And so paying attention to that, praying that the Lord would reveal that, that is spiritual growth. And I'm excited about those of you who are on that path, and I know that it is many, many of you. When we talk about love, like 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, love is patient, love is kind, it's not jealous, it's not boastful, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not easily angered, doesn't keep records of wrong. When we start describing those kinds of virtues or behaviors, it's easy to get the impression that love is a pushover, that love is weak, that love doesn't get things done. It's easy to think that. However, today's message is to help us understand that love is far from that. Love is everything we talked about last week. However, love is not weak. It is not impotent. It is not fearful. In fact, love's opposite is fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So love empowers people to be and do the best. And that's where 1 Corinthians 5 fits in. That 1 Corinthians 5 is all about how love activates and protects in community. Love is not weak because it stands up for truth. Love stands up for truth. Love leads to disruption. So love is disruptive. I would invite you, if you've never done it before, pick up the Gospel of John and just start reading about Jesus, Jesus who is love. I would invite you to start reading about how Jesus loved through his relational style the people around him, his teaching, his mannerisms, what he chose to say and what he chose not to say. I'd invite you to reflect on that and look at how disruptive Jesus was to the people around him. That's because Jesus was loving, and Jesus was loving really well. And if you follow Jesus and you're able to see in some of those stories how much courage it took for Jesus to love that well, that self-preservation wasn't on Jesus' radar. There were times when he did preserve himself, thinking about the time when he visited his home where he grew up, and he preached in the synagogue, and he told the people listening that he was the Messiah. And that made them so angry that they tried to take him to the edge of a cliff and throw him off. Hometown welcome. So Jesus slipped away from the crowd because it wasn't his time yet. So Jesus was able to preserve his life. But he wasn't scheming or strategizing. 
on how to keep himself safe. No, he was not. Love was disruptive. And maybe we would say unfortunately, but really fortunately, not only does love stand up for truth, not only does love lead to disruption, but love also leads to discipline. Love leads to discipline. Hebrews 12 tells us that. Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. The author of Hebrews, and we're not sure who wrote Hebrews, but whoever it was that wrote it, said this, And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as a child. So love stands up for truth. It, it is disruptive, and it leads to discipline. It leads to correction. I would hope that everyone sitting here this morning could say to me honestly and sincerely, Pat, I'm not the best version of me that I'll ever be. I haven't reached my zenith in character development. I'm not my best version. I hope that a year from today, my spiritual life will have deepened. I hope that a year from today, I'll be wiser than I am today. I hope that a year from today, I'll be more discerning than I am today. I hope I'll be more self-controlled a year from today than I am now. And I hope in five years, that will be even more true. I would hope that you could all sincerely say to me, yeah, Pat, who I am today is not who I was five years ago, and I pray by God's mercy and grace that I'm not who I will be in five years. I pray that God will keep growing me throughout that time. That's good. If you can say that sincerely, praise the Lord. He will work in your life, and you will live to see, God willing, changes, beautiful changes as you're conformed to the image of Christ. That happens through correction. It happens through discipline. And discipline is not generally pleasant. It's not something that we enjoy. That's why the author of Hebrews has to remind us the discipline of God is evidence of his love for you in your life, and not only that, but that you are a child of his. The author goes on in Hebrews to say, you have right standing. You have full standing as a child, and that's why you have the discipline, the privilege of the discipline of God. He's not indifferent to your development spiritually. He's very, very interested in your development. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 5. There's only 13 verses in 1 Corinthians 5. St. Paul says this, I can hardly believe the report about sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You're so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I'm not with you in person, I am with you in the spirit, and as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man. In the name of the Lord Jesus, you must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. And then you must 
throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you, and then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us, so let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer and yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Strong words from Paul in chapter 5, and it starts out addressing an issue which the, the Corinthian church thought they were being tolerant, open-minded, in being able to have this man who's in this relationship with his stepmother, and this is not the mother we normally talk about on Mother's Day, um, but, but here she is in our text. Uh, she apparently wasn't part of their fellowship, but he, he was. And they said, Paul says, you need to get together this whole body of believers, and you need to deal with this. This is really, really serious. And that brings us to our first line on our outline on the back of your bulletins. If you have one and something to write with, you can follow along. Love does not aid sin. Love does not aid sin, aiding and abetting sin. What is love? If it doesn't aid and abet sin, what does it do? It is an irritant to sin. That's what love is. Love is an irritant to sin. Love is disruptive to sin, something we talked about a few minutes ago. Love puts limits on sin. That's what love does. Love puts limits on sin. Love doesn't say you have a blank check and you get to do as many awful things as you want without any consequences at all, and we're simply going to keep no record of wrong, and therefore what that means is you don't have any accountability or any kind of consequences. That's, love doesn't say that. Even though love doesn't keep a record of wrong, love sets limits. Love imposes consequences. Especially, Paul says, when it comes to body life, when it comes to all of us sitting together here doing more than just listening to a sermon because we happen to be individual Christians on a Sunday morning. No, 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 no. We're, we're building something here together, you and I, right? 
we're building the body of Christ. And we're doing that by loving one another. Loving one another and passivity don't go well together. To sit back and not engage means that you're not helping us build community. My prayer for you last week was that God would display for you what's on the inside so that that could come out. I also offered to you that there are rough edges in your life, and those rough edges are getting rubbed off by community, by all these family members who claim the name of Jesus Christ, who are brothers and sisters in the Lord. All these people are here to help you grow. That's real. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be. Now, I know that we clean up well, and I know that we you know, shake hands and we're pleasant, and some of us even talk to each other. I mean, we, we do that. That's great, but that's only the sort of top layer of community. A community that changes your life, community that transforms and heals your brokenness, that really only happens when you engage, when you start to become part of the body life of the church. And that's when God can do his best work. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So we don't want to revel in our sin, right? We don't want to come in here celebrating that we're broken. And yet, if we conceal our brokenness, we conceal the power of God. So there's this strange tension of being able to say to my brothers and sisters, I am broken, and sin and I are in a death match. And I would love to say that I win all the time, but I often am not winning. Sometimes it's winning in my life, meltdowns. That's sin winning in your life. I need you, brothers and sisters, in my life. I need you to tell me when you're affected by my sin. That's disruptive. If you were to say to me, Pat, yeah, what you said really, you know, it, it bothered me. And I have to tell you, I don't think it was okay. That's disruptive to me. And yet, if I'm coming here to be a part of the community, then somehow the Lord has to say to me, Pat, I've been talking to you about your tongue for a long, long time. When are you going to start listening? When are you going to stop leaving bite marks on people? Those are the types of things that the Lord uses community to say to you and to me. So love puts limits on sin. Love dis disrupts sin. Love is an irritant to sin. And love expels sin. Love expels sin. Like your stomach expels cod liver oil. Love expels sin because they don't they don't live together. They don't play nice together. Love and sin don't play nice together. Second blank there. What love is and what love is not. Sincerity is the first blank. Sincerity and truth versus wickedness and evil. Sincerity and truth versus wickedness and evil. Sincerity is defined as being free from pretense, hypocrisy, or deceit. Being free from pretense, hypocrisy, or deceit. That's sincerity. And what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 5 is he takes the metaphor of Passover, and some of you don't know about what happens in Passover, but one of the 
rituals in a Jewish household is to go through the entire house, and the father is supposed to do this, and look for any leaven, any yeast. It represents sin. And that house is supposed to be completely cleansed of all the yeast, and then the father is able to declare that we are a yeast-free household. There is no leaven in our home that symbolizes that we've expelled wickedness from our home and our family, and we can celebrate the Passover in holiness or differentness, that separateness that comes from God. And Paul pulls that metaphor up right here in chapter 5 when he's talking to this family of believers. And he says, So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. And this sort of double parody that he has here, this contrast of wickedness and evil versus sincerity and truth. And if you think about truth as something that comes right from God, and what grows out of truth? Sincerity. What is sincerity? It is being free from deceit. What is deceit? Deceit is being lied to. So sin lies to us. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah told us that, chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart of a person is desperately wicked, broken, and it is, above all else, deceitful. That the human heart is deceitful. So the human heart lies to itself. That means that, and then we've talked about this on other occasions, that you're probably not the best placed to be able to tell the truth about what you're doing. You probably need other people in your life to be able to tell you the truth because your heart twists and distorts what you're doing and what you're thinking so that you're not able to discern it well. Sometimes you get it right. One of the powerful parts of the Word of God is that it is active and it is living and that it's sharper than any two-edged sword and that when you open it up, it cuts deep. And one of the beautiful things that the Word of God does is it shows you the motives of your heart. That's beautiful, that it shows you the motives of your heart. Why? Because without the Holy Spirit and the active living Word of God, you're not in a really good place to know why you do what you do. You're not even really in a, in a good place to be able to see what you do and how that affects this body of believers in a negative way. Sincerity is that beautiful quality that comes out of truth that doesn't have deceit in it. Mel Gibson, a year or so ago, put out a movie called Hacksaw Ridge. That is a character, that lead character in that movie, if you've seen it, is someone who's free from deceit, and his whole world can't understand how he can't be playing a game, that he must be insincere. And when they find out that his sincerity is rooted in truth, it transforms all of these battle-hardened men. And they become sheep, in the best sense of the word, able to be led by one of the meekest men any of them have ever met. That's the power of sincerity. It can transform people instantly when people understand it's rooted in truth. Paul said that's a beautiful thing that can happen 
in this body of believers, Corinthians, it can happen in your church. Let's celebrate sincerity coming out of truth, not wickedness coming out of evil. When you're letting this guy who's committed to sin, when you parade him around in your church like you're some kind of tolerant, open-minded people, you're wrecking sincerity. You're inviting duplicity. You're inviting deceit. Evil is the root of wickedness. Evil is where wickedness comes from. Evil consumes to fill emptiness. It was true for Lucifer, and it's true for us. He convinces us to consume goodness to fill us. Even in what I would say is a misguided uh, fairy tale, uh, Harry Potter, there's a bad guy, Voldemort. And one of the things he does that's awful is that he tries to stay alive by becoming a vampire and killing unicorns, which are seen as beautiful and pure. And he is sucking the life, literally, out of these beautiful beasts. That's a very biblical depiction of what evil does to goodness and beauty. It consumes it to try to stay alive and fill the emptiness, the gnawing, driving emptiness of sin. So that's evil. And I do want to momentarily pause to talk about the difference between foolishness and evil. Because if you have a spectrum, though evil is always at work, foolishness is evil on training wheels. And there is a way in which foolishness outgrows training wheels and becomes full-fledged, virulent, malignant, community-killing evil. Foolishness lacks wisdom. So children can express foolishness because they just don't have experience. And teenagers, any of you have parented teenagers, there are times that what they do doesn't make sense. And if they would have thought it through, they probably would have done it differently. That's one of the marks of an adolescent. They do dumb things. That's foolishness. Foolishness does have an undercurrent of evil in it, but it's not as conscious. Foolishness lacks self-control. So is it foolish for your 18-month-old, who does have words but chooses not to use them, to pick up the macaroni and throw it across the bowl and throw it across the kitchen at you. They have some level of self-control and there should be some level of accountability for an 18-month-old because you might say, if you've parented an 18-month-old, I think they know better than that. They're just having a bad day. When you see a five-year-old or a 10-year-old demonstrate that same behavior, your tolerance goes way down, right? Because they should have outgrown that. We see that foolishness, sort of with training wheels, occupies a space on the spectrum that you can grow out of with correction, with discipline, with insight, with self-control. But evil, evil is waiting to pounce 
And evil wants you and I to graduate from training wheels into being able to consume other people and not lose sleep about it. To feel justified in ripping the spiritual insides out of someone and not losing a wink of sleep. So if you think, for instance, of the Westboro Baptist Church that has a reputation for standing for sexual purity against homosexual lifestyles, but their rhetoric is not just hateful, it's caustic, it's malignant. There's no gentleness, there's no kindness. It's absolute bombastic That isn't consistent with the message of Jesus. If you read how he interacted with some of the worst sinning people, you never see a tone coming out of his mouth towards those in particular in sexual sin, unless they were Pharisees. That did get a little different. If you were a money changer in the temple, that got a little different. But that kind of angry, hateful, violent, and we're going to go home, put our, sh our cards, our placards in our garage for the next time, and wait till the next military funeral that we can protest. That kind of settled violence is one expression of evil, that it goes under the radar, and that there's whole groups of people who can exhibit behavior which wrecks community damages people, but they sleep perfectly at night, feeling totally and completely at peace. That's when evil loses its training wheels and moves into maturity. So evil sees others as consumable, and calling card for evil is it's deceitful. What does that mean? It means that it rarely has the integrity to manifest itself as what it is. It will always play itself off as something noble, something needed, something regretfully required, it'll pass itself off like that. It will rarely pass itself off as obviously violent and destructive. And Paul is telling, telling the church, you guys are tolerating evil, and you know what that's going to do? It's going to corrupt and it's going to consume sincerity. It can't consume truth, though it could conceal truth can't consume truth. Truth can't be consumed. But sincerity can be. Sincerity can be cut off at the knees. And this guy, representing that sin of sexual immorality, was cutting sincerity off at the knees, and the church needed to be up in arms about the damage that that was going to do to their body life. Unrepentant sin is the next line on your outline. Unrepentant sin drains sincerity from community. Unrepentant sin. So I think it's important in our discussion about 1 Corinthians 5 to realize that we're not talking about creating a community here of perfect people. That's not the goal, that you would come and you'd stop telling on yourself and that you would demonstrate that you've stopped sinning. That's not the goal of Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, and it's not the goal of this church. But there's a difference between unrepentant sin and the sin that so easily entangles. You and I are 
broken people, and the Bible teaches us, especially in Galatians, that our nature, which is made new, 2 Thessalonians 5, we have a new, we are a new creature. We are a new creation in Christ. We have a new nature. And yet Paul says in Galatians that that new nature and that old nature are fighting all the time, and every choice is going to be bound up in this conflict between our broken selves and our new selves. And so the Christian person among the whole population of the world is a uniquely tortured. <laughs> uniquely tortured because you alone have a new life-giving nature in you. Someone who is spiritually dead doesn't have the conflict. They don't have the pull. There is only one nature controlling choice-making. There is a conscience. Romans 1 tells us even people who don't have a spiritual life have consciences, and that can accuse and defend. But what Paul is talking about in Galatians is this fight that believers have. Unrepentant sin is when you wave the white flag and you say, I'm going to stop fighting. I give up. Not just in a passive way, but why don't you move in? I'll give you the spare bedroom sin. This issue, you can just sort of have this corner of my life, and I'm not going to fight anymore. In fact, I'll invite you to dinner once in a while. We can hang out. You know, maybe we'll make nice. If you can't beat them, join them. That's unrepentant sin. That's different than the wrestling that you and I do with those sins that get the best of us. Paul says that, and he demonstrates that in Romans 7. Romans 7:19, Paul says this, For the good that I want, I do not do. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin that's living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. And Paul writes Romans near the end of his ministry career. He writes 1 Corinthians near the beginning of his ministry career. Paul is telling us something truthful about fighting with sin. And if you take Paul at his word, he doesn't always win. In fact, it seems like maybe he doesn't win most of the time. But Paul is not describing yielding to sin like he comes up with this list in 1 Corinthians 5. If we look at verse 11, for instance, in our chapter today, 1 Corinthians 5:11, he says, I meant that you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer and yet indulges in sexual sin. The King James translates that term as whoremongering. Uh, the New American Standard might translate it as fornicating. That is, any expression of sexuality outside of the covenant bond of a man and wife marriage any expression of sexuality outside of a God-ordained marriage between a husband and a wife, any expression of sexuality outside of marriage is sexual immorality. The Bible's really, really, really clear about that. Really clear. And Paul is clear here. And what he says is that sexually immoral behavior is unrepentant sin. It's inviting sexual sin 
to take up residence in the spare bedroom. It's giving a section of your life over to this thing, which will what? Wreck sincerity. It will cut the life out of sincerity. Why? Because you know you're selling yourself out. You know it. And when that happens, something weak begins inside of your heart and your spirit. It starts to corrode. And sexual sin is one of the things that erodes confidence and sincerity the quickest. It, it attacks the inside integrity of a person when they know they're not honoring God with their sexual lives. And there's those, there are going to be those in this service and in the next service who know exactly what I'm talking about because they're living it right now. My appeal to any of you who are resonating and being convicted by this, honor God, fight sin, repent, change your mind about letting that sin have real estate in your life. We have a ministry called Freedom Fighters. I help to lead that ministry because I need that ministry. That's a ministry for men to fight for sexual integrity in their lives. Talk to me about this, if this is something you want to stop in your life. But Paul doesn't end there. Greedy, those who are idolatrous, those who are abusive, who use violence, words, actions, emotions, abusive, drunkards, and people who cheat, swindlers. Jesus uses this same Greek word in Matthew when he says, be careful, because there are wolves in sheep's clothing. He says ravenous wolves. That's the same word Paul uses here for a swindler or a greedy person, a ravenous wolf. So Paul says, there's lots of people out there like that. What I'm talking to you about, Corinthians, church people, faith church, I'm talking to you about the people inside who have the Jesus Saves shirt, the ones who wear the WWJD bracelet. Those people who claim to be believers and yet have unrepentant sin in their life, who stopped fighting the good fight, those people, the people who actually are praying, consuming the sincerity of good-hearted people, those are the people who are wrecking your, your life as a church. And so he leads, that leads us to our last uh, blank, which is you need to resolve to fight evil. Resolve to fight evil. So Paul exhorts the church to commit to removing evil by disavowing fellowship. Disavowing fellowship. Now, this is where it gets a little bit murky. Because you can see evil clearly in another person, especially when it hurts you, so you pick up a stone and you're ready to throw it. Jesus said, let he who has no sin pick up the first stone, right? So there needs to be a humility. There needs to be an understanding that by the grace of God, there go I. That heart has to resonate in your spirit. But you can't be so <laughs> humble that you don't love. Because love is disruptive, love sets limits, love is discipline, that is loving. So when there is sin at work, unrepentant sin, love does something about it. So love one another enough to do something about it. 
And where do you start? Start first where Jesus said. Is there evil in your life? What did Jesus say about the plank and the speck? What did he say to do first? First, you take the log out of your eye, and then you'll probably be able to see well enough to find that speck that's so bothersome for your neighbor. So start first by judging yourself. And that's what we did last week. And doggone it, if this beautiful person who talked to me moments before I came into the service didn't say, the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it showed me the motives of my heart, and I was able to repent, and I was able to come alive. And she confessed that sin to me, and I said, praise the Lord. She's growing. That's beautiful. That's community. That's happening. Watch out for the plank in your eye. Look for unrepentant sin. Look for foolishness. And lastly, look for anger. We don't have time to turn there, but write down E-P-H. That stands for Ephesians. That's a book in the New Testament. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Beautiful words about what to do about anger. Your anger never helps God get done what he needs to get done. And what Paul says is anger gives the devil a foothold. It's like a sign to evil saying space for rent, cheap, <laughs> I'll give it to you for free. You're inviting evil to take over when you hold on to anger. When you hold on to anger, you're inviting evil to start taking over. Not only that, but Paul says keep real short accounts on your anger. He says don't let the sun go down on your anger. So today, is there somebody that you're angry at? Paul would say in Ephesians, don't let that sun go down until you've made that right or done everything you can to live at peace with that person. Some people won't let you off the hook. They won't stop being angry. You can't control someone else. But for as much as it depends on you, can you make peace so that you can say before God, I did what I could in a good conscience. So anger, watch for anger. And then use gentleness. If you are going to move beyond the plank in your own eye to the speck in your brother's eye, do that with gentleness and kindness. Paul exhorts one of his favorite people, Timothy, with these words out of 2 Timothy. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, be patient with difficult people, gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change the people's hearts and they will learn the truth. That spirit of gentleness needs to pervade how we relate to each other. And beautifully, our 1 Corinthians chapter 5 dovetails with the next letter that Paul writes. 2 Corinthians. And here's what he says in his second letter, his follow-up, after he says, this guy, this guy in sexual sin, get him out. The church did it. And here's the follow-up that Paul says. Serves him right. Keep him out. Lock the door. Remind him of his sin. Is that how Paul handles this guy? No, it's not. I'm not overstating it, Paul says, when I say that the man who caused all that trouble and hurt, he hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. 
Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you as I did to test you to see if you would fully comply with my instructions. So I urge you now, reaffirm your love for him. Because this man stopped giving that sin space in his life. He repented. That means he changed his mind about that sin. He said, enough. And Paul said, good, welcome him back. Because this is a place for sinners who are struggling with their sin. Not for sinners who have put up the white flag and decided we're just going to let sin have its day. This body of believers needs to preserve the purity of sincerity coming out of truth. Next week, come back. I would like to talk about a very beautiful principle called Christian freedom or Christian liberty. Learning how do you live in freedom is an essential element, and it will be the last element that we'll talk about in this series on community.